right. All right. We'll see how, we'll see how you feel when I'm done. 11.22, wow, some energy in this room. That is awesome. Do you realize what your pastor's done? He, he's a revival. I mean, people have fasted for three weeks, a revival, and he invited a Presbyterian right in the middle of a revival. You gotta believe in the power of God can even overcome a Presbyterian preacher at a revival. And saturated, that sounds like something that's pretty wet. That sounds like a lot of water. We're not comfortable with a lot of water, so... And, and, and the, the, the young woman that's signing for the deaf over here, I mean, she is the show over here. I mean, yeah. So this thing starts to lag a little bit. Just stand up, catch the, that, that's good over there. Pastor uh, Joby and his uh, a bride, uh, and, and gosh, you guys treat a visitor well here. I mean, a standing ovation, I haven't done a darn thing. And uh, honestly, uh, so well received and um, uh, honored, privileged. Um, God's up to something uh, in this place. And uh, just to get to watch it and uh, experience it and, uh, and feel it. Thank you. Thank you to, any, to, to, to you guys for having me. So, um, all right, ready to rock and roll? Okay, here we go. Um, we're going to read from God's word then to start. So why don't you stand and we'll give attention, uh, show deference uh, to the word of God. Uh, I'm just going to read uh, real briefly two passages from the Apostle Paul. And the first is Philippians um, uh, chapter 3 in the ninth verse. But, you know, Paul says uh, in, the, in, the, in the fourth verse, he said, I myself have reason for confidence um, in the flesh. Listen to what he says. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I have more reason for confidence in the flesh. I have, I have more credentials. I have a greater resume uh, than anyone. Uh, but in verse 9 he says, but this is, my, uh, this is my desire, that I might be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but, but that which comes through faith in Christ a righteousness from God that depends on faith. I'm reading to you the very words that change my life. That there is a righteousness that comes from God. The words you might recognize from Romans chapter one. These are words that changed my life. It shouldn't be a big surprise. They changed the life of Martin Luther, uh, changed the lives of so many people uh, through history. Romans chapter one, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, for in the gospel, there is a righteousness from God that is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Or, as the note says on the bottom of the page, the one who by faith is righteous shall live. This then is the very word of God. You may be seated, please. There's a question tonight is do you get the gospel? Do you get the gospel? Now, I'm not asking if you're a Christian. I'm asking if you get the gospel. I'm asking if you've had an experience with the grace of God. Um, not so that you could uh, uh, explain it, maybe even uh, teach it, um, but that you've had an experience um, with the grace of God that's rocked your life. Um, in such a way that, that, that you have tasted and experienced the power of the God. The gospel is uh, the power of God. Uh, have you experienced that um, power? It is a terrible thing to have no power. It's a terrible thing for a church to be without power. It's a terrible thing for a, a denomination. There are whole denominations without power. It's a terrible thing for a nation to be without power. In Japan, there was a terrible tsunami, uh, you remember, a couple years ago, and the power plant, the nuclear power plant, didn't have power. Um, that which is supposed to have power didn't have um, power. Much more relevant uh, to us is, um, it's a terrible thing not to have power. You're a dad and your daughter's got bulimia. And, uh, and her life is wasting away before your eyes and you're bringing her around to every doctor you can. 
What is it to be powerless that you can't stop it and you can't make her well? It's terrible to not have power. What about his parents, your, your kid, you raise them in the faith and you raise them at home and they go off to college and, and they go wild and they deny the faith and they, they consider you like a, like a dinosaur that you still believe these archaic uh, things. And they're, they're, they're headed on a path of destruction and nothing you do seems to uh, be able to rescue your own baby. No power. Now what about if you're a, a man and, and you're, your, um, your wife doesn't like you. And the truth is you don't like her. And your marriage sucks. And, uh, and you can't make your marriage well. And you can't uh, change your wife. And, and worst of all, you can't um, change yourself. It's a terrible thing to have um, no power. Um, listen, after pastoring for 10 years... Um, I came face to face with this because church members came to me and they're struggling and they said, you know, I, I'm trying hard. I came to faith in Christ and it was exciting and, and I got into everything. But now I've, I've done the Bible studies and, uh, and uh, I've, 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 I have a quiet time and I read the Bible and, uh, and I go to church. I've, I've been on all the retreats. Um, but, you know, the Bible says if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Everything is new, but nothing's new about me. Uh, I'm tired. And, uh, and God's far away. And, it, and, 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 and my interest in, in the things of God are waning. What do I do, pastor? It was a crisis for me because, because I'd sit there and hear them pour this out. Just say, I'm, I'm tired. Nothing, nothing will light the fire inside of me anymore. It was a crisis because I'd sit there and, and, and know I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't help him. I, um, you know, um, you just need to pray more. You, you, you just, you, you're just going to have to be more consecrated. Here, here, here's a new hottest Christian book. It's, a, it's a how to be more sold out. <laughs> the radical, radical Christian. The radical, authentic Christian, right? And... Um, and I just realized the emptiness of my own um, words. But, but the bigger part of the crisis for me was, um, was this. Um, was the realization that um, I wasn't being transformed. It's the realization that I was distant from God. That I didn't love my um, uh, neighbors. I, I didn't even know my neighbors. I didn't want to know my neighbors. I had disdain for um, non-Christians. Um, the, the, this was the greater... Um, challenge. Um, you know, the kick butt Christianity that I was offering the congregation had worn um, thin, but not just in their lives, in, uh, in mine. Uh, and of course, worst of all is my marriage was unhappy. Um, and it, it, there was a particular crisis. My um, son, we had a Christian school and, and uh, he had aged out of our school, but we added a bunch of grades and now he was aged back in. And when we put him back in the Christian school, he was none too happy about that. He was my oldest uh, child and um, for me, the, the dream of my life was to have children, was to have an intimate relationship with my children, was to produce ultimately children that were you know, world changers and successful and happy. And, and, and now my 12, 13 year old child is sullen and he's angry. And I'll never forget um, realizing that uh, for the first time I was looking in the face of my uh, boy, he got so, he got so um, angry at me that he ran away from home. Thankfully, there was a policeman in the congregation, found him three blocks away. But, uh, um, I'll never forget looking at my angry son and, uh, and realizing, oh my goodness, I have reproduced. Uh, that's me. I've spawned. Um, I, I was looking at myself um, in, the, in the face. Um, you know, I moved to our community because I wanted to see Jesus make all things new. And it's a sobering moment when, when I had to come to realize that the most broken part of the community was me. I needed the gospel. I needed to get the gospel in ways that I never um, had. Now what changed me? Here's what changed me. There is a righteousness from God. 
There's a righteousness that comes from God. It was understanding that my relationship with God didn't depend on my performance, but on Jesus' performance. And that uh, had a profound effect on my life. It changed everything. It changed my um, preaching. It changed my leadership. It changed my parenting. And, uh, and thankfully, in the grace of God, it changed my marriage. Now, tonight, that's what I want for you guys. I want for you to experience uh, the power uh, of, uh, of the gospel. I've come to realize that the power has the gospel. The gospel has the power to change the, um, the most resistant uh, and you know who the most resistant to the gospel is? The most resistant to the gospel is the pastor. The most resistant to the gospel is the missionary. The most resistant to the gospel is probably the person who works in nonprofit. The, the purveyors of good and ministry uh, end up with the most calloused um, hearts. We're doing good all the time. We're performing all of the time. But I'm here to tell you that the gospel has the power to change the most. I should also add the church attender. The gospel has the power to change the church attender. Um, there might be a few of those here in this room tonight. Um, you know, when I'm done uh, tonight, I hope you say, I don't, um, I don't believe the gospel anymore. I don't believe the gospel anymore. Now I've experienced it. It's not just a belief anymore. I know it. I have tasted it. I've smelled it. I have experienced the gospel. There was a, a friend in our church told me there was a block party. She lived in Akron, Ohio at the time. There was a block party and, and uh, meet all your neighbors. And one of the neighbors was uh, an African-American woman and she was an ample woman. I think that's a, a politically correct way of saying she was large. And... Uh, and uh, um, and she was a pastor of a Pentecostal church right in the neighborhood. And, and so my friend said, wow, I'm, you know, I got to visit your church because I, I hear you guys in there and I hear you hooting and hollering and, 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 and I, 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 I think I got to uh, pay a visit. And, uh, she said that, that woman, uh, kind of took her and folded her in and said, um, she said, will you come on down? Cause we'll wake you up. We're going to wake you up. Well, may the gospel wake us up um, tonight. All right, so here's, here's where we go. I have come to learn. I want you to experience the gospel. Um, I want you to experience the gospel in your life. I want you to experience it every day. I want you to experience it tonight, that right in this room tonight, you might experience the kiss of God. Because when you get kissed by God, um, that's, when, that's when everything starts to change. Listen, I've come to learn that few Christians get the gospel. We know non-Christians um, don't get the gospel. We want to get the gospel to them. But it was a surprise to me to learn that um, few Christians get the gospel. This is my story, right? I'm a pastor. I'm growing a church. And I myself um, don't get the gospel. What's sad is that uh, it's very destructive when people don't um, get the gospel. When parents don't get the gospel, um, they raise their kids in destructive ways. When, um, when pastors don't get the gospel, they abuse their staff uh, and people in the church. When spouses don't get the gospel, when school teachers um, don't get the gospel, it visits destruction on the people we work with and, uh, and lead. I'll give an example. There's a, there, there's a marriage on the rocks uh, in, in our church. And so I'm, I'm, I'm talking to the husband. He's estranged from his wife. He's... Um, he is a Bible college graduate. He is a, uh, a seminary um, graduate. He's an ordained pastor. He's uh, been a foreign missionary. He's got a house full of, uh, of children. And um, he's adopted uh, children. And the marriage is estranged. So he's sitting in front of me and he's rehearsing once again his indictment of his wife. He's like a, like a prosecuting attorney. He's laying out for me, line by line by line, um, uh, what's wrong with her. Of course, leading to the conclusion of saying, my wife wants to divorce me, but she does not have biblical grounds. And of course, he wanted the church to weigh in on his side and join him in the prosecution uh, of his wife for her unbiblical pursuit of, uh, of divorce. And I still remember saying to him, um, do you, I just, just let's go somewhere for a minute. Do you, do you actually want your marriage to be healed? Is that what you, do you really want that? He said, I want that more than anything in this world. 
I said, could I make a suggestion? I said, I'm going to actually script out for you what to say to your wife. And, and I, I'm just going to tell you to say it even if you don't believe it. Um, maybe, you get, maybe you can own about 10% of it at least. But I'm going to say, you, you know, next time you talk to your wife, you get a chance to really have a serious, then, uh, th- then why don't you say to her, you know, you, you know, sweetheart, I, I don't think you have grounds to divorce me. But you know what? God is opening my eyes to see what an arrogant ass I am. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I, um, and, and I'm not seeing very much. There's a lot more to see, but, uh, but, uh, but God's opening my eyes to start to see it. And, and, you know, I don't think you should divorce me, but, but I'm just starting to understand that it, it has to have been hell to be married to me. <laughs> and, and if you divorce me, I'd never hold it against you. And I just want, I just want you to know, I am, I am really, really sorry for what I've put you through. And you know what he said to me? My wife has no biblical grounds to divorce me. And sure enough, they were divorced. And I can't tell you the destruction that his arrogance visited on his family. He was, he was, he was a missionary. He was a, a preacher. He was um, seminary trained, but he didn't get the gospel. And you don't get the gospel um, you can, uh, you can destroy people and destroy people's, um, lives. So what is it? What do I mean when I say people don't get the gospel? Here's what I mean is that we don't believe that Christ is our righteousness. And we don't believe that Christ is our righteousness. Most preaching in churches and most books in Christian bookstores are not about what Christ has done. They're about what we're supposed to do. Here's the seven principles to get your financial house in order. You know, here's the, here's the five ways to make your um, marriage work. Um, and uh, follow these principles, follow these things, do what you're supposed to do. Um, and that's what the books are about. They're not about what Christ has done. They're about what we're supposed to do. I remember going to a church. Whenever we go on vacation, we'd visit a church. And this was a mega, mega, mega church. You guys are like mega, mega. This was mega, mega, mega. And, um, and, it was, uh, and, the, and the pastor was speaking on uh, and a gifted order. And uh, he preached from the Bible. And it was on being a husband. And it was on like the five principles of the biblical husband. And I took good notes. I mean, he had great stories. It was convicting. Um, it was scriptural. And, uh, and for the entire time, I wrote down everything he said. Those five points. And when it was over, I turned to my wife and I said, only one problem with, well, multiple problems with that sermon, like five of them. I said, I don't, uh, I don't do any of those things. And not only do I not do any of those things, I can't do any of those things. That's why we need Jesus. That's why Jesus is your husband. That's why Jesus is my husband. And, and, and uh, it, it got to be a game. Wherever I travel with my kids and we were in a church when the sermon was over, I'd say, what was missing from that sermon? You know what they'd say every time? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus was mission, missing because we were told over and over and over what we're to do and not what Jesus has done, what Jesus has accomplished for us. I can't do the five things a husband's supposed to do. I can't keep the law of God. That's why I need a savior. That's why I need a redeemer, right? So, um, you know, it's amazing. Um, uh, liberals took, uh, took God out of the church. They took the Bible out of the church. But, but a great deal of evangelical Christianity has taken Jesus out, um, and, and we've ended up with this moralistic um, version of Christianity that's nothing but religion. Um, that, would, that would make Christianity, that would defang Christianity, that sucks the power right out of um, Christianity. You know, well, uh, there's a phrase that changed my life, it changed my ministry. Um, 
the indicative um, precedes the imperative and the order can never be reversed. Can you believe that? I don't even get English uh, literature terms. Uh, I had to look up what those meant and it still changed my life. The indicative precedes uh, the imperative and the order can never be reversed. What that means is the Bible's filled with imperatives. The Bible's filled with do this, don't do that, right? All over the Bible it tells you uh, that there's behaviors you should avoid, there's behaviors you should pursue, right? Those are the imperatives, all the, the, the you must do this. But the, but the imperatives follow the indicative. The indicative is, is who we are. We sang about that tonight, right? We have a good, good father. We're children of the father. That's who we are. So out of that comes what we're supposed to do. But that's not the message of so much of Christianity. The message of so, much, so many churches is, um, here's the good you must do if you want the love of the Father. I've I just read uh, yesterday a, a lullaby. This is a lullaby. This is what you would sing to your children when you put them in bed at night. Jesus loves me when I'm good. Do you know this? Jesus loves me when I'm good, when I do the things I... That means he doesn't love me. That means he'll never love me. (laughs) Jesus doesn't love me because I do the things I should. That's what I mean. That's what I mean when I say we don't get the righteousness of Christ. So let me bore into that a little bit more. Here's number one. Most Christians believe that we have merit. We give assent to salvation by faith alone, but we don't believe we are made right with God by Jesus' righteousness alone. Now listen to what I'm about to say. You don't have to go to church for five minutes and you, and you start getting clued in that if somebody says to you, um, um, you know, how do you get right with God? You don't say, well, through effort. Uh, it's Jesus did it. Jesus, uh, grace, 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 uh, Jesus alone. But listen to what I'm saying. Most Christians believe we have merit. We give assent to salvation by faith alone, but we don't believe we're made right by Jesus' righteousness alone because we think we have merit. We think we have righteousness. I'm saved by Christ alone, but we think we have merit. We think we have righteousness. How else do you explain our self-dependency, our pride, our self-righteousness, our inability to see our sin, our coldness toward God, our anxiety, and our inability um, to love. I mean, if we have no righteousness, where do we get off being so critical of other people? If you have no merit, and that's what grace is. Grace is unmerited favor. That means you have the favor of God, and you didn't earn it, and you don't deserve it, and you contributed nothing. You have no righteousness, no righteousness, Christ's righteousness alone. So, well, but, but where do we get off on being critical? We're constantly critical. Have you noticed there's somebody that collectively as a nation we look down our nose at every week and have disdain for? Colin Kaepernick about a week or two ago, right? That was the national ire was directed at him. We can all feel ourselves to be superior people and patriotic Americans. Um, And a couple weeks before that, when the Olympics were wrapping up, who was it? Ryan Lochte. Um, That that, uh, Speedo wearing um, um, liar. One... uh, one tweet I, I read said, Ryan Lochte being called back to, um, uh, to Brazil to receive a gold medal and being a total moron. And that was a pastor who tweeted that. And I thought, boy, you better be careful because as far as I know, I'm a total moron. Um, I'm a total moron. Uh, I actually think I can do life without God uh, virtually every day of my life. That sounds like a moron to me. Um, we, you know, a woman comes into church and she's, her skirt's too short, her heels are too high. And we think, what is this? What is she, I mean, who does she think she is? What is this, like fashion week? She got this the runway? Um, you know, somebody's kids in a restaurant are, are unruly at the table next to us. We think, I would never let my kids act like that. We are a steady stream of self-righteousness. And yet we say we get the gospel that we are saved by the merit of Jesus alone that we have no righteousness of our own. But we don't believe that. We don't believe that. Listen, even churches, 
um, claim their own righteousness, don't they? I went to church one time, they had a, right when you walked in the front door, they had a, a, a map of the whole world. And everywhere in the world, they had a missionary, they had a light, a blinking light all over the world. And what was that church would just scream at you when you walked in that church? We're the missions church. We're better than you. We love missions. So we have churches today that say, you know, we're, we're the biblical church. We teach the pure, unadulterated word of God. That's why we have 17 people. Because you know? we're, so, we're so pure. And, and today, we have, today we have the authentic church, right? We're, we're, the, we're real. We're authentic real. Um, and we're more real than other churches. Other churches aren't real. They're faux. We're real. <laughs> Listen, grace is unmerited favor. So we have to decide, do we have merit or do we not have um, um, merit? Uh, one of the hardest things for me was learning what it means to repent of my righteousness. Do you realize that, that uh, everybody repents of their sins? It's not distinctly Christian to be sorry about your sins. Almost everybody is sorry if they're unkind or angry or, or lash out at their kids. Or, or Almost everybody. That's not distinctly Christian. What's distinctly Christian is not repenting of your sins. It's repenting of your righteousness. Okay, so that sounds cool. When I first heard that, I thought, what the heck? Repent of your righteousness? I thought that was the whole point. Be righteous. Do righteous stuff. Do hard stuff. So I got to say I'm sorry when I do the right thing. I don't get it. The Bible says all our righteousness is, has the equivalent worth in the eyes of God as filthy rags. And it's one of those places where the Bible is being very genteel. Because you know, you've been well taught here, that it's not, it's not dirty rags it's talking about. It's menstrual cloths. It's tampax. That's what it's saying. All your righteousness has that value. It's disgusting. The, 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 the Bible, we're, we're more PC than the Bible. Just read Song of Solomon sometime. Um, so what does it mean to repent of my righteousness? I couldn't figure it um, uh, out. Um, what, it, what it means is that even my good deeds are attempts at self-validation and thereby offensive to God. Even the good things we do, underneath them is an attempt to earn favor with God instead of trusting in the work of Christ um, for me. I can't even do good things without sinning. Listen, um, we, are, we, are, um, we, we, all, we are righteousness producers. Um, there was a woman in our church. Her righteousness were her sons. She had two sons. They were pastors. I mean, it was her pride and joy. She'd always tell me stories about her sons. They're pastors. And then her oldest son, the pastor, divorced his wife and he abandoned his family. And he took up with someone else, a man. And she was so angry. And she cut him out of her life and she wouldn't uh, let him in her home. He wasn't welcome at Christmas or the holidays. She wouldn't take phone calls for him. She wouldn't even open a letter if it came. She was so angry at him. How dare he take, listen, she was angry at, uh, at him, but she was far angrier at someone else. She's far angrier at God. Listen, she, she understood what a lot of people think Christianity is. It's a quid pro quo. I do my part. Listen, train up your children in the way that they should go and you got God in the corner, right? You've boxed him in. He has to give it to you. And your children will follow him. She did her part and God let her down. And do you know that she never took communion in our church again? She never took communion again. Because she had a sense of entitlement. She wasn't able to um, get the gospel to see that I have no merit. I have no righteousness. Um, listen, it is so hard for the moral. It is so hard for the, you know, remember what Jesus said? It is easier for the camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for somebody wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Why is it so hard for the wealthy? Nobody, oh, you ought to kind of perk up at this because Jesus said it's really hard for you. We're the wealthy. 
really hard for you. It's really hard for me to get in the kingdom of God. Why? Because there's only one thing required to enter the kingdom of God. The only thing you need is what? Need. And that's what the wealthy don't have. And that's what prosperity uh, ruins us as a culture. To, to be at a place where, um, and then that's why the poor got a leg up, right? I have nothing. I have nothing. I have nothing to offer God. The only thing you need is nothing. And if you're self-righteous and proud, that's too high a price for you to pay. Nothing is too high a price for you to pay. To admit that you've got nothing. You know, we've got in our um, 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 church on Saturday night, we have the, the, this homeless shelter. They all come to worship. And it's kind of a kick um, because, you know, when I'm walking up uh, our offices across the campus, so when I walk over to the church, you know, I'll encounter a church member coming in and sometimes they'll say, Pastor, how are you tonight? We are just so looking forward to you opening up the word of God for us and exegeting a passage from his holy word. And, um, and then I walk by the, the homeless guys and they're all smoking by the front door and they're like, Father, Father, give them hell, Father. You know. And strangely, I'm far more encouraged by them than I am by the... Uh... So... So a couple times a year we do healing in our um, prayer for healing uh, in our services. And, um, and so this was one of those nights. And I just remember what I observed that night. We had about 400 people there that Saturday night. And, and out of that 400 people, the, 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 the church folk, um, I'd say 25 of them came up um, for healing. For Presbyterians, come on, we don't walk the aisle. You know, so this is like, you know, new. And, uh, and so, you know, to get up in front of everybody, actually come forward in a service, be anointed for healing. I mean, um, I, I thought that's great. That many people kind of that, that, that are they're willing to they have chronic illness and chronic need and desperate need. And, and uh, but I noticed 25 out of 400, I thought it was fantastic, honestly. But I noticed there were about 17 people from the homeless shelter there that night and 15 of them came. And I remember driving away that night thinking, I will never know the desperation they know. They have no home. They have no money. They have no career. They have no family. Some of them don't even have their, their mental health. They have nothing. They have nothing but Jesus. They are desperate for Jesus. That's what it means to get the gospel. But most Christians believe we have merit. Second, let me say um, this. Most Christians do not believe. Well, you know, I got to tell you one more um, story. Um, so, so I go to the gym, which I think you could tell. Um, so, un, unnecessary to mention. Um, so my trainer tells me that... Um, that he works out two women in the morning. And, uh, and one is a nun and one is a prostitute and he works them out together, which I think is just amazing. It, it sounds like a parable, right? <laughs> so the nun and the prostitute went out to the gym to work out together, you know. And um, the nun is, um, is in her 70s and she has been chased her whole life. She has been committed to the church her whole life. She has served her whole life. She is filled with fear and anxiety. She uh, takes antidepressants. Um, uh, she is racked with torment uh, and, and, and guilt and insecurity. The prostitute uh, a year and a half ago um, uh, entered in recovery and rehab um, got off her um, addiction and met Jesus there. And, um, and you know what? She's not been chased. Um, but she has the righteousness of Christ. And, uh, and every morning at the gym, the prostitute would coach the nun on how to get the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the power of the gospel. Jesus said, there's prostitutes. He said to the religious, there's prostitutes and there's tax collectors uh, heading to heaven ahead of you. 
there's more of them than there are of you. Got it? Second, then, uh, we want to we say, what, what do I mean when I say we don't get the righteousness of Christ? Most Christians do not believe in the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. We don't believe that God is satisfied, uh, and, and because he's not, we need to validate ourselves by our performance in God's eyes. We base our assurance of our salvation on our sanctification. If we are good, then we are acceptable. We understand Christ as our sin bearer, but not as our righteousness producer. Let me explain what I'm talking about. For 30 years, 34 years now, I've been pastoring and everybody comes to our church and wants to become a member. I ask them this question and they write out the answer. I, it's an age old question. Um, if you were to die and God were to say to you, why should I let you into my eternal family? Well, what would you say? On what basis should God let you into his eternal family? And here's how it works out. Half the people we'll give what I call a non-Christian answer. They'll say, I've been a good Methodist all my life. I've always tried to do right. I've never hurt anybody. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, um, so half given, I, 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 I. My profession is, is my eternal hope is vested in my performance. Is that awful or what? My performance is my eternal hope. Of course, you're thr- we're thrilled to have them, right? Half of them give that answer. The other half give what I call the Christian answer. And I'm telling you, it breaks out like this. Every group I ever have virtually like that. They, the other half say, what's the Christian answer? Jesus died for my sins. Jesus died for my sins. In, in, in 34 years, nobody says, Jesus lived to produce a righteousness for me that allows me to stand before God, beautiful and holy in his sight, covered with the righteous life of Christ. Jesus kept the whole law of God for me. You see, brothers and sisters, we are saved by works, just not ours. We're saved by the works of Jesus. Every jot and tittle, every requirement of the law of God, he kept for us. But people say, how could you say that that, that church people don't get the gospel? Because I've been asking them for 34 years. And for 34 years, they only tell me, Jesus, my sins were imputed to Jesus. They're right. But nobody says, but his righteousness was imputed to me. They don't get it. They don't get that whole part of Jesus didn't just come into the earth and die. He lived, right? He lived, uh, he, he lived into adulthood, keeping every law of God so that he could be the second Adam, so that he could be everything we were intended to be, um, so that we stand before God. All of his righteousness imputed to us has God look at us and show us the same favor and the same affection that he gives his own son. Now think about that. You know, one of the ways I've illustrated this, maybe it'll help you, is, is that... Um, if you go into a bank and you, um, um, you owe money, uh, you, um, uh, you're behind. In, in fact, you've bounced 10 checks, right? So all those checks, everything you wrote, to, the, you don't have the money to cover those checks. And now you've got all the fees on top of that, right? So, I mean, what is the fee today for a bounced check? <laughs> you seem to know well. Yeah, it was... Uh, yeah. I want to watch the offering there. It's that, that don't get real excited when you get a big check from there. So So suppose you go in, you got all these fees, you got all this money you owe and the bank says to you, "You know what? All your debt, we're going to take it away. We're going to cover all of that." Would that be grace? And the answer is, "Yes! That's unmerited favor." Sun Trust isn't going to do that. Banks don't do that. We're going to cover all of that. And by the way, when you get forgiveness, that doesn't mean it just gets wiped away. Somebody always pays. That means whoever owns that bank, they've paid. They're paying. It costs them. It's a pound of their flesh. They're going to take away all your debt. That's what most people who profess Christ in America believe Christianity is. Is that all our debt's taken away? When that person who walked in the bank with all that debt and walks out with none of that debt, what's their financial condition? 
When they walk out of that bank, what's their financial condition? It's the same as when they went in. They don't have any money. All their debt's gone, but they don't have any money. So what do they need to do right away? Work, 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 work. That's what most people uh, who are Christians in this country believe. Isn't that awesome? Jesus took my debt away. You know what that means? When I die, I'll go straight to heaven. But in the meantime, I better get to work because I gotta pay God back. I gotta live a life worthy of God so I can pay him back for everything he's done. And that's why so many uh, churchgoers in our country are exhausted, frustrated, and feel like Christianity is just, that's what Jesus said to the Pharisees, you just heap more burdens on people's backs. So we get that Jesus is our, is our, is our um, takes our sin away, but we don't get that he's our righteousness producer. Little, I was speaking at uh, um, a high school camp teaching these uh, very things, and um, a little girl came up to me after it was over, and she was so cute, a little like 10th grader, and she came up and she said, Pastor, 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 I get it, I get it. This is awesome. I have been living to please myself. And, uh, and, and because of what you said tonight, I'm going to stop living to please myself. And now I'm going to get up every morning and I'm going to go out in that day and I'm going to try to live in such a way that God might be pleased with me. Well, it sounds like progress, right? But you know, all I'd be doing is turning that girl from what was a younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son to the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. All I'd be doing was uh, sentencing that girl to a lifetime of moralism, of trying to climb the mountain of obedience that perhaps God would be satisfied with her. So I had to say, no, sweetheart. Um, yeah, you are living for yourself, but the aim of your life isn't to, to work so hard, to get up every morning, go out into the world and work in such a day that God might be pleased with you. I said, I want you to wake up every morning in the utter confidence and assurance that God is pleased with you. He is pleased with you. He's pleased with you because of the work of your older brother, Jesus, who's accomplished all of the law on your behalf. And it's been credited to you because you are in Christ. Then you go out and live for him. But you go out and live for him as a secure daughter uh, of God. There you go. Now, when I talk about getting the gospel, I don't mean like, okay, I got it, got it, got it. Never struggle again. You know what? You got to get it every day. You know the problem? The problem is I lay my head on my pillow at night and, and I soothe myself by, by just remembering, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I belong to God. He's watching my kids. He's watching my grandbabies. I can go to bed. And when I wake up in the morning, you know what? My feet hit the floor and I think, I gotta work. I gotta produce, I gotta validate myself. I'm nothing if I can't get to my to-do list and start scratching stuff off. The gospel leaks while I sleep. We don't get the gospel because we believe we have merit. We don't get the gospel if we don't understand the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. And most Christians don't experience God as an affectionate father. That's, that's the third and last. We don't experience God as an affectionate father. We don't know his kiss. I asked people for, uh, for, for 35 years of, 34 years of ministry, if you could picture the face of God and we were looking at you now, what would his visage be? And they say, I think he'd be disappointed with the way I live today, the way I live my life, with my lack of zeal, my lack of dedication. I'm not who I ought to be. Look at what he did for me. That's what I mean. We don't get it. We don't, we don't, um, um, we don't know his kiss. You know, I just read somebody say the most beautiful words ever, perhaps, the, these are the most beautiful words perhaps ever said or ever written. Isn't that a dramatic claim? The most beautiful words perhaps ever said or ever written are from the parable of the prodigal son. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran, embraced him, and kissed him. As an utter failure, he staggers home, having humiliated his father, and his father saw him from a long way off and he loved him and he ran to him and he embraced him and kissed him. The most beautiful words 
perhaps ever said or ever written. He kissed him. Some may think that God is just a judge who bangs the gavel and says, you're not guilty. Jesus took your sins away. But you don't know his embrace. You don't know his care, his closeness, his affection, his generosity. My daughter, when she was in college, um, she, my older daughter, she was, uh, she's kind of tightly strung, you know? And, uh, and so when I, I'd get a call from her and I'd pick it up, she said, dad, dad, my computer broke. <laughs> you know, dad, I got finals coming up. Dad, dad, I got finals, you know? And, uh, or it'd be dad, dad, my car won't start my car, dad, you know? And <laughs> just life was, you know, collapsing and, uh, Every time, you know what I have to say to her every time? Sweetheart, you got a dad. You got a dad. I'm not going to let you. I'm not going to let you flounder out there. You got a dad. That's what it means to get the gospel. You got a dad. We sang about it tonight, didn't we? If, he, if he'd rip open the, uh, the Red Sea to protect his children from uh, the Egyptian army, you got a dad. He's a good, good dad. Um, well, anyway, this is my story, you know. I thought I had the gospel. And I'm, I'm a pastor, but I had no clue that I was a Pharisee. Uh, and my pastoring led, uh, that, that, that flaw in not getting the gospel led me to pastoring, which urged people to run hard because I taught that only the faithful will um, feel the smile of God. And I built a church, it was a Republican right-wing, Fox News watching, Sean Hannity worshiping, um, bastion of conservatism. I taught kick-butt Christianity. We got too many wimpy, wuss Christians, and we got to take the hill, hands on the plow, no turning back. Um, One of my favorite things to say was, what is the bare minimum to be a Christian? What is the bare minimum? You know what I mean? There's non-Christian and there's Christian and somewhere you cross the line. What's the least you can get over the line and still be considered a Christian? The bare, and I asked my congregation, what's the bare minimum? What do you think? I'll tell you what it is. The bare minimum is everything. (laughs) You have to give everything. They loved it. Um, The problem is, I didn't give everything. Nobody gave everything. And then I I just had to face the fact that fruit of the Spirit was absent in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience. I hate that one. (laughs) I hate that one. Not there. I didn't love Jesus in an intimately. I was filled with anxiety. I was emotionally retarded. And, uh, and my marriage was really um, struggling. But I'll tell you something. God sent me messengers of truth. And God was kind to me. Um, and my wife tried um, to, to tell me the truth. Um, but the, the messengers came from the strangest places. I remember one time I was driving back from a meeting out of town. I got back, it was late. Uh, and I knew I, they made an appointment for me at like six o'clock at the office. I was like, oh gosh, I am a martyr. And, uh, the, um, and it, was a, it was a young woman in the church and she was brand new in the church and that was the only time she could meet with me. And so I remember coming into my office and, and sitting down and there she was and she was so scared. I mean, in fact, she was just, she was sitting there just trembling, which is exactly the way it should be. <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And uh, I said, no, 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 you know, take a deep breath and tell me why you're here. And, and she said, no, and she got up and walked out. Twice she got up and started to walk out. And I said, both times I said, just tell me why you're here. And she said, well, I'm a teller at a local bank. And we had this kind of group meeting of all the bank tellers. And anyway, at, 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 I heard the girls from another bank talking. And they, they were talking about this customer they had who's, who's just the, the uh, uber jerk. And she said, and she stopped. She said, and Pastor, they were talking about you. And uh, she said, I'm, I wanted to defend you. I thought, I see him every weekend in church. He's not like that in church. And then, and then she thought, she said, and then I thought, 
but maybe that's just the way he acts in church. So I thought you ought to know. And I remember when she told me that, I thought, I, I, how could they view me that way? Those imbeciles at that bank, I, I, they can't get my account right, and I bring in all the paper, and I so patiently show them their imbecility. Um, Yeah, actually, I knew something was wrong with me. I went to counseling, and uh, my wife and I were so estranged. We actually went to separate counselors, and and uh, in the when when I when I went to counseling, the counselor said, um, I, "I've been to counseling a lot, you know, a lot of nice guys, you know, and they always prayed for me." And uh, <laughs> this guy, this guy sat down and he said, um, "So why are you here?" Which, you know, some of you are scared of counseling. Just a little tip. That's the, they'll lead with like that. So come up with something, you know, before you, <laughs> you go. So why are you here? So I, 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 don't, I don't think I love people very well. And the counselor looked at me and he said, you don't love people well. He said, how arrogant is that? You know what you're saying? You love people better than almost anybody. You just don't love them well enough. He said, you don't love people at all. You hate people. We're 15 seconds into the counseling. (laughs) What happened? uh, Let's talk about the Braves game. Let's, you know, the weather, chit-chat. Let's build rapport. You hate people. I said, all right, let's, whatever, whatever. Let's, uh... I don't think I hate people, but there's one I hate. Um, so why do, why do you don't think people why do you think people don't like you I said well and I was very embarrassed to tell this I remember it just felt so shameful to have to admit this thing that was inside of me I said but you know I got this friend he's been a pastor at his church for four years I've been at my church for 15 years and he calls me up the other day and he's telling me about the party they threw for him and like, I think they gave him like new golf clubs. Are you kidding me? New golf clubs. And somebody gave him a freezer filled with steaks. What? And, uh, and he's, so on the phone, of course, I'm saying, oh, praise Jesus. You know, that's so cool. I'd love to see you affirm like that. And I'm telling the counselor, but inside, you know, I, I said to the counselor, and again, I was just ashamed to even admit it. But I said, inside, you know what I thought? I've been at my church 15 freaking years and they've never thrown a party for me. And when those words came out of my mouth, I thought, oh, crap. (laughs) That's word for word what the older son and the prodigal son said to his dad. I thought, I am not, I'm I'm just, I'm not only that guy, that guy's actually channeling through me right now. (laughs) You never threw a party for me. It was just, it was a horrible realization that I didn't love the people I pastored. They were pawns in my grand scheme to build a church to validate myself in the eyes of God and in the eyes of myself to quell the voices of inner self-hatred and self-loathing by my performance. And what better performance could you have than to be a minister of the gospel, to perform for God, to try to earn his pleasure. But you know what's far more sobering than that was to realize not that the congregation itself were just pawns in my scheme, but that my children were too. The aim of my parenting was to produce children that made me look good. And then, you know, it was even more sobering than that was to realize the woman who had given her life up for me that I used her to. That's pretty sobering, still sobering. Um, you know what? I treated, I treated the congregation, I treated, uh, you know, I, I treated my wife the way I thought that God treated me. You know? Um, that's the problem. You know, I, I entered marriage with an unspoken contract. Um, I was excited to get married. The unspoken contract was, your job is to adore me. Your job is to validate 
me. Make me feel valuable. There's a void in my life because I don't know God as the loving Father. And you know what changed me? The realization that the righteousness was produced by God and it was given to me. It's not produced by me and given to him. And I began to rest in the righteousness of Jesus. And I began to believe that I was a beloved son and that God took delight in me. Um, and it's progressive. You know, one thing that's uh, was been very hard for me is being in front of people all my life. Preaching scares me to death. And, and I have to sit on the front row anytime I preach and I sit there in the front row and all I'm saying to myself is Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Tonight I was scared to death until we sang that last song. I'm a child of God. I remembered. I'm a child of God. Who cares what, church, what, the, what this church thinks? I'm a child of God. But I've always been scared. I, you know, I remember when I played high school basketball, I, I threw up before every game. To be on the um, to be to be up in front. You know what I realize now? That God watches me when I preach, and He actually He gets a kick out of it. <laughs> he actually likes me. He's kind of fond of me. You know, you know. Think about when you're a little kid. Like you take your little five year old and you sign him up for the first soccer team, and they get him that little uniform. And you run him out on the field, and they run across the white line, and they don't fall down. And their dad's like, Look at him! Look at him! He ran across the white line. He did not fall down. The kid's awesome. He's a prodigy. Did you see that? He's got the gait of a gazelle out there, you know? He scored two goals. They were for the other team, but the kid's got a foot. I mean, you know. You go to your little daughter's recital, it's horrible, you know? You got to take Tylenol, you know? It's horrible. But you don't care because they're your kid. They're not, you don't realize God watches me when I preach and he's like, Cortez, he's not that good, but <laughs> but he's kind of cute. I like that kid, you know. I like that kid. You know, I, and God opened my eyes to see the impact that my drivenness and my demandingness had on other people. Um, uh, on, my, on my wife, my kids, the staff at the church. Um, it's a powerful thing to say, I, I don't believe in grace anymore. Uh, but I, now I've tasted the grace of God. Um, have you? You know what sociologists say? The only thing a person really needs to thrive is, is for somebody to be crazy about them. It's all a child really needs is for somebody to be crazy about them. There's a father wound for so many people. I speak to men, all I have to do is start talking about their relationship with their dad and the room always gets just as still as it could get and quiet. The number of men have told me, my dad just printed on my soul, you will never amount to anything. I think of the woman in our church whose dad's nickname for her was stupid. Come here, stupid. That's what he called her. To realize that, um, that you have a father who is taken with you. Because you are covered with the righteousness of Christ. He loves you. This, you are my beloved. And in you I am well pleased. Um, I used to think that walking with God. I was a follower of God. I was a Christian when I was a little child. God, I, I used to picture that he's walking about 50 steps ahead of me. And, and I'm on the road to heaven. And I'm following God there. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. He is right. I respect him. I will follow him. But he's about 50 steps ahead of me. Now to realize that's not my God. My God, kiss, our God kisses us. Our God runs down the road and takes us in his arms and embraces us and kisses us. I got seven grandbabies now. Seven, they're all boys. And, and, and when I walk them down the road, the dirt road that leads up to our house, we walk all the way down the road to get the mail or to get the newspaper. And uh, we're looking in the dirt and we're looking at what animals have crossed the road that night. And we're getting sticks and we're shooting bad guys in the woods, you know. And, and I pick those kids up and I throw them in the air and I make them laugh. And, uh, and I think, God, I love these guys. I would die for these babies. That's how your dad feels about you. And not only would he die for you, 
He has. He has. Do you know the kiss? A friend of mine was unfaithful to his wife. He didn't go all the way on that unfaithfulness, thankful, but he, he transferred affection to another woman and he, he, he blew it. And he was going home to tell her. And he was scared to death because he knew she would cut his eyes out. And when, he, and when he went home and told his wife, it crushed her. And through her tears, she grabbed his face and you know what she said? There's a part of me that hates you. But you are my husband. And you are a good man. And we'll get through this. And she kissed him. He said that kiss saved his life. That's what I want to know. Do you just believe in grace? That's what he said to me. He said, I don't believe in grace anymore. Now I've known it. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Pray with me. That you're a good, good father. That you would, um, that you would make us your sons and daughters. That you would look at us with such affection. That you would uh, run down the road humiliate yourself to take us in your arms and give us your kiss and for um, um, for my, my friends in this room I pray that even tonight uh, they might run smack uh, into your affection for them and they might, they might know it, they might believe it and they might feel it and they might experience your power the power of your gospel that they might be saturated with your grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.